You can now find all of C-SPAN's nonfiction-focused podcasts in one place, the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed. Follow now, and you'll get all of C-SPAN's podcasts that are nonfiction book-related every week. I'm Shannon. And I'm Rachel. And as part of the podcast team here at C-SPAN, we wanted to make it easy for our nonfiction book lovers to access all of our offerings in one place. Hear from authors like Kadada Williams on her book, I Saw Death Coming, Joan Biscubic and her latest, Nine Black Robes, or Neil King, who shared his walking journey from D.C. to New York City in his book, American Ramble. Featured programs will include Book Notes Plus, Q&A, Afterwards, and About Books. You can follow the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed wherever you get your podcasts. This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, business journalist Jason Del Rey discusses his book, Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for Our Wallets. He looks at the rise of Amazon and Walmart and their economic impact on the U.S. and the world. He's interviewed by Insider Chief Tech Correspondent Eugene Kim. Welcome to Book TV and congratulations on your new book. It's titled Winner Sells All. Um, I've been a big fan of your work for many years, and it's great to see all your great reporting put together in one book. So congratulations. Thanks so much, Eugene. And uh, I think I think you know as well, uh, big fan of your work over the years, not Amazon is not an easy company to cover, and so um, for fellow reporters who do it really well for a long period of time, I just have the utmost respect, and, and you're, you're at the top of that list. So uh, I'm thrilled to chat with you today about this. Great. Thanks. Uh, so to start off, uh, I wanted to ask about the title of your book, Winner Sells All. Uh, what did you try to convey there? Uh, it seems to reflect... You know, both Amazon and Walmart, they want to sell everything. But um, at the same time, your the conclusion of your book seems to imply that um, there's going to be many winners at the same time. So uh, w- what's kind of your thought there? Sure. So I, I think what I was trying to get at with the winner sells all title is there was a period of time where specifically – Inside of Walmart, there were some leaders who felt if they did not finally sort of get their act together in online retail. So they had, you know, as we might get into for many, many years, you know, had fits and starts of paying a lot of attention to e-commerce and investing. And then, you know, but really it was a sideshow, a distraction for the company. And there came a certain point where Amazon was growing so quickly, creating so much uh, gaining so much market share in e-commerce that that Walmart did feel there could be a day in the future when Amazon is essentially the only winner in e-commerce, you know, whether that's 80%, 90%, 100% market share, some very large number, unless Walmart acted in a big way. And uh, you're right. We, I, you know, I end the book... Um, Without giving away too much yet, uh, saying that, uh, A, we might not be in a great position as a society if 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 there's only one. I think we know that. Um, but even these two Goliaths going head to head, their competition is probably not enough to bring about all the positive changes that we'd hope would come with innovation over time. And so um, may, maybe we'll be talking about another company 20 years from now that does things better uh, with respect to labor relations and 
consumer uh, attention and also environmental impact. Right. And um, I'm also curious about the the timing of the book. Um, you know, this rivalry competition has been going on for years. Um, was there any particular reason you decided to publish this now or any reason why uh, the viewers have to care about this now? Sure. So I think there's a couple of reasons. I, I started working on the book in uh a proposal for the book actually in 2019, um, signed a deal in 2020, a few months after the pandemic began. At that time, you know, e-commerce had become, online shopping had become, you know, not just a convenience, but for many, many people, a necessity. And so uh, Walmart was sort of forced after many years of, again, um, you know, treating online shopping as as a sideshow, not really connecting their online business to their stores as much as they could have and as much as Amazon feared they would. Uh, Walmart was forced to, you know, if they wanted to keep their customers and gain customers to really invest heavily in this space. So that was that was part of the timing and the impetus that we, you know, we my agent and I actually sort of rushed out the proposal a little ahead of where we would have liked because of the pandemic and all the focus on how important e-commerce was. It was a lifeline for many people. Um, Also, there have been many great books written about Amazon. We we both know the journalist Brad Stone, who has written uh, two of them. And but Walmart, you know, despite their size, despite their power and influence, really hadn't been a big, important book written about them uh, since about 2006, uh, a book called The Walmart Effect. And that book actually, if I'm not mistaken, did not mention Amazon once um, in it because of the timing of it. And so Walmart has gone through this classic case of the innovator's dilemma as they've tried to figure out online retail and catch up to Amazon in some ways. And I just thought it was a really undercovered story. the tenure of the CEO, Doug McMillan, who has tried to lead this reinvention, you know, has been covered day to day in news publications by some great journalists, but not in a deep, thorough way. Um, and each company influences each other's strategies so much over time that I just thought it was a story that hadn't been told. And as the two biggest employers in this country with so much influence, you know, now was the time. Yeah, I, I agree. There's there's not that many uh, good books about Walmart. Um, I think the only book I read was the the biography by Walmart's founder. Um, right. Yep. But um, so so your book really uh, does a great job of you know really capturing uh, the latest on on Walmart. Um, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the opening scene of the first chapter. It's it's really a, a fascinating scene where. Um, this guy named Robert Davis meets with uh, Walmart's then CEO. Uh, I think his name is David Glass. Correct. Um, he practically puts his uh, job on the line to convince the CEO that uh, Walmart has to push harder on e-commerce. Um, and then, you know, the story gets really uh, complicated. But uh, can you kind of get into that a little bit? And, um, you know, would history be different if his... Uh, pitch went a different way. Any thoughts sure. on that? Yeah. So um, yeah, it's one of my favorite anecdotes in the book. And um, 
you know, I even covering Walmart and Amazon over time, I'd kind of been under the impression that Walmart um, just kind of in the earliest years in the 90s, just kind of missed the boat on e-commerce, wasn't paying enough attention. Uh, And what I found after a lot of reporting and, you know, some very helpful former Walmart execs pointing me in the right direction, uh, I found there was there was there were, excuse me, there were people inside of Walmart who saw the promise of e-commerce were actually, you know, leading some very small initiatives at Walmart um, as Amazon was just getting started, selling goods through, you know, a Walmart website. I think Sam's Club had an early website. That's part, Sam's Club is owned by Walmart as well. And, you know, this employee, Robert Davis, big champion of the Walmart company, had been there a while already, I think about a decade, and imagined he would spend the rest of his career there. Um, 1998, summer of 1998, uh, that's the time of the scene. And yes, he walks into the office of David Glass, who was the then CEO. Uh, Walmart had an, and still says they do, have an open door policy. So walks in, asks to meet with David, and is explaining, you know, we have this small team experimenting with e-commerce, but really I need all the other divisions to know from you, the CEO, that we are committed to this new sales channel, essentially. That if I go to, to the warehousing division or the trucking division and tell them I want to put Walmart.com stickers on the side of all these trucks that crisscross the country, that they won't laugh in my face, essentially. And, you know, David Glass, who was a smart, longtime leader of that company, he said, Robert, this... Uh, this online thing, it may be, may be cool and new, but I don't think it'll ever be bigger than the sales of one of our Sam's Club stores. And so uh, Robert Davis had a decision to make. He, he had colleagues who had left for Amazon and were trying to get him to join. And he had, a, he had to decide, do I stay at this company I love, but that isn't seeing the future? Or do I, you know, take a chance, take a pay cut, move my life my family from Arkansas to Seattle and go on a new adventure. And, and that is the path he, he chose. And your question was also, would things be differently? I Listen, Walmart had the connections, the product selection, the logistics might, the trucks to really, you know, be a huge player early on if they, if they you know, put all their effort behind it. And I think, I think it's possible Amazon, yes, may not a be as big or or you know even be around potentially if they had put a big commitment behind this in in the 90s i mean amazon was was tiny at the time uh, you know maybe 100 or 150 million in revenue which you know yes is a big number but uh, the company's worth 1.28 trillion today so nothing back then and and walmart was selling uh I think I think a billion uh, a year through the super centers. So, huge moment in time and a story that up till now I believe was was not told about this important part of business history. Yeah, and was there a moment when um, I guess Walmart started to take Amazon more seriously? Um, you know, a lot had happened. Uh, the rise of the internet, mobile, and you know e-commerce. 
Um, but was there kind of a, a catalyst that changed the perception over Walmart versus Amazon? Yeah, sure. So, so two come to mind. So, so a few years after Robert Davis leaves Walmart, uh, a young executive at at, at Walmart uh, who had uh, actually married into the com- into the Walton family, uh, married a granddaughter of of Sam Walton. Um, he he, you know, convinced the company that they should start a dedicated online unit at first partnership with a venture capital firm that didn't go very well. And then as part of Walmart proper, um, he sort of, you know, he saw what was coming a bit. He would go on to become Walmart's chairman. And, uh, and so that, that was an inflection point where they at least were, um, investing a bit, Uh, but, but really, uh, you fast forward until the early 2010s, Doug McMillan becomes CEO, Walmart lifer, but a younger leader uh, in 2014. And he and his leadership team decide, we just need something to speed up our metabolism. Amazon Prime is a wrecking ball. Um, We are losing, they knew by that point, they were losing the best Walmart online customers to Amazon Prime. And... uh, they they end up deciding that the best way forward is to make the biggest e-commerce acquisition at the time of $3.3 billion to buy really a pretty unsustainable young startup at the time called Jet.com. But in turn, they were buying a leadership team uh, led by an entrepreneur called, uh, named Mark Laurie, who, you know, for people who follow the space uh, might know, previously started a company called Diapers.com. Uh, parent company's name was Quidzy, sold it to Amazon, although Walmart really tried to buy that company as well. Mark spent a few years at Amazon uh, before starting Jet.com and then uh, becoming part of the Walmart family through that giant acquisition back in 2016. Yeah, uh, we should probably get into Mark Laurie and the whole jet acquisition but before that um i also wanted to ask uh the kind of ironic part reading your book was that uh walmart was always kind of a early adopt adopter right they, they they kind of invested in uh new logistics and made early, early investments in technology uh early on in the uh founding years but then uh for some reason they didn't embrace e-commerce um for a long time, and uh, I'm just curious why. Why was that? Was it just uh, you know fear of cannibalizing their own uh, physical store business, or were there other factors in play? Yeah, I think there were a few big reasons. One, one was um, you know Walmart built on uh, low low prices, um, low wages for employees, but also. Uh, you know, they've always run their operations as profitable operations. And, you know, they there was this thing where they did not want to have different prices in stores from online. But when you're shipping goods th- because of e-commerce, you have to pay. Obviously, you have to pay for people to pack those boxes and then sh- and then the shipping fees. Right. And so e-commerce, especially in the early days, really unprofitable operation and a company whose DNA is all about not wasting a cent 
and making sure you make profits and then Wall Street expect, expecting profits, um, not to mention dividends, uh, you know, the, those two just, you know, those two things were hard to, to reconcile. And so um, they did not want to lose money. But at the, at the, on the other side, they were facing a company in Amazon who was telling Wall Street, um, don't expect profits for a long time. We're going to gain market share and eventually we'll have tons of free cash flow as we gain market share. Uh, but, you know, we're in this for the long term. And so that was a big sort of DNA, you know, problem, culture clash, um, you know, sort of what some would call a classic innovators dilemma. Um, and that was so even, you know, I talked to a lot of leaders of the Walmart online unit over over time, and they said even at different points, you know, they'd have a reporting structure where they reported, kind of reported into two different leaders. One would be saying, grow, 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 uh, in sort of the Amazon way. And the other would say, um, you know, make sure we hit profits. Uh, you know, just one last thing on this topic. One, one of these leaders I quote in my book, uh, he, he said that, you know, there were a couple years where in the early 2000s where Walmart online was finally growing, you know, pretty quickly at about a 50% clip uh, year over year. And uh, that was not really celebrated. But when the business unit got close to profitability, um, that is what leaders celebrated. And he called it a mistake because he said, you know, Wal- uh, Amazon at that time is investing billions a year into into their e-commerce uh, core business. And we're investing maybe a couple hundred million. And so um, looking back, some of these leaders just felt like, you know, it was really hard at that time for them, but also that maybe they didn't paint Amazon as much of the existential threat as they should have. Um, but it was hard to see for some of these Walmart leaders that looking at their size of their business and then seeing, you know, a much smaller company, um, you know, innovating in a new way. Yeah, and I think the cultural issues you, you get into in your book, that's also played a really big role. Um, you know, I guess the, some of the executives had different incentives. Um, Greg Foran, the U.S. Walmart CEO, had some, you know, he didn't get along with Mark Lowry, basically. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, one one of the biggest takeaways for me, uh, sort of business takeaways, and it may sound obvious, but it's, you know, something along the lines of in- incentives really matter. And when you have different divisions of a big company with incentives that don't align for your leaders, like, you're going to have big problems. And so as you alluded to, um, you know, Mark Lorre comes into Walmart with his leadership team from Jet.com, all these tech e-commerce guys and gals uh, in the late 2010s. And their incentives, their bonus structures are really all about growth, sales growth, Um, not judged on profitability at all when it comes to bonuses. You have a guy named Greg Foran, who a longtime retail leader uh, in Australia and then for Walmart in China and then in the U.S. running the massive store network. And a big part of his bonus structure and his leadership teams has to do with profits. And so um, Mark Laurie and their team's numbers uh, roll into uh, Greg Foran's numbers. And so the the losses in e-commerce affect Greg and his team's 
bonuses, and uh, it was a big problem. You know, I have some anecdotes where Greg Foran is quipping to, to colleagues that uh, Mark Lurie's the $3 billion man, and uh, he must be a long-lost Walton uh, relative for how much stock Walmart gave him as part of the acquisition. And Mark, you know, to be fair, didn't really help the cause much. You know, he, he once... He once made a joke in public that Greg makes all the money and I spend it all. And um, just at a company like Walmart based so much on frugality and low prices and profits, uh, that just was never going to go over well. So uh, we should probably talk a little bit more about Mark Laurie. He plays a central role in your book. And, you know, in, in the scheme of whole, the Walmart's whole history, um, he was a kind of central figure. Uh, who is this guy? Why is he important? Um, sure. Tell me more about it. Yeah. So today, I mean, people, <laughs> uh, non-business audience may know him uh, best if you're a sports fan, as he's, he's now a co-owner, co-owner of the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, basketball franchise, along with Alex Rodriguez, the former baseball star. Uh, but I'll back up. So Mark Laurie is uh, a guy from originally from Staten Island, New York, uh, moved to New Jersey as a child and is sort of an entrepreneur's entrepreneur, always coming up with new ideas. He and a colleague, he and an old friend once had a, in their early days, a baseball card company that they sold to uh, Tops, the baseball card company. And then he and a friend then go on to start a company called Quidzy, which was a portfolio of websites, but really the main one was diapers.com. And diapers.com really was fascinating and uh, attracted loyal audiences, especially in New York and San Francisco, because for busy parents that were starting to become digitally savvy, they were putting diapers on your doorstep uh, in a day or two. The customer service was incredible. And, you know, they were really challenging Amazon and Walmart in this space. So uh, he sort of first comes on the business scene in a big way with that company and then the acquisition, the sale to Amazon. Um, I have an anecdote in my book about the sort of the last few days before Amazon agrees to really purchase that company. And he and his co-founder tell the Amazon leaders over dinner, there's some alcoholic drinks being uh, consumed, that Walmart came in at the last minute and offered them $100 million more. And I describe how for, you know, you would think for someone on the precipice of a huge uh, fortune that, of course, you take the extra $100 million. But he and his co-founder, the Amazon executives sort of flip out on him at this dinner table uh, in New York City. They threaten to cut the prices of diapers even more. And uh, essentially, they he and his co-founder end up sticking with Amazon. They say now, you know, largely out of uh, fear of what might happen if, if the Walmart deal falls through and they don't have Amazon buying them either. So he he becomes known for that reason. And then, like I said, um, either in his final days at Amazon or right after he leaves Amazon, still unclear, starts this new idea of a company called Jet.com. Again, another online shopping site, 
um, but was trying to do things slightly different way, give savings to customers um, for taking actions that would make shipments more affordable for the company. So you order more goods, uh, Jet.com would give you a discount because they could hopefully have all those goods come out of the same warehouse, have the warehouse be close to your home, and uh, the shipment would be cheaper for them, and so they pass on savings. They had a, a variety of different mechanisms to try to help you save money. Uh, it was really complicated, though. Uh, J- Mark and his team spent tons of venture capital money advertising Jet.com on TV, on buses, subways, trying to just get people to s- try the service and then stick with it. And they're starting to run out of money but Walmart, they find Walmart and a connection with Walmart's CEO, an introduction, and Walmart's pretty desperate at that time as well. And so they they find this marriage. Uh, and Mark goes Mark goes to spend four or five years at Walmart, which we've we which we've alluded to. And he gets sort of uh, carte blanche, an open you know open checkbook initially at least to reinvent Walmart's digital operation as he sees fit. It does not all go well. Uh, we could talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to. I, I, I think uh, Mark was a bit of a polarizing figure as well. Like, I think you're, you, you say he's a, he was a great salesperson, uh, a great visionary, but uh, a terrible operator and <laughs> repeatedly failed to hit internal goals. Obviously, he had his clashes with Walmart's old guards, uh, I mean, was he the right answer for Walmart? Looking back, what's kind of your thoughts? Yeah, on? you know that's that's a great question, and um, I'll give I'll give the answer I sort of give in the book when you know I know people in this space initially want to know like was Walmart's decision to acquire Jet and really acquire Mark and his team a successful one or a good one or not. My answer is, it depends on what your definition of success is, right? So if success is changing the narrative of Walmart, once considered sort of a total digital uh, laggard, someone, you know, a company that was to some consumers backward in some ways, um, he was successful. If it was speeding up just uh, the metabolism of the digital transformation at Walmart, if it was, you know, trying a lot of new things and just showing customers that uh, we're going to we're going to try to meet you online, how you want to be met, how you want to be served. I think he was successful. And and the last part, I think in technology circles, I think there are now executives and, you know, talented technology leaders who never would have taken a call from a Walmart recruiter before that in the last few years did because, again, the reputation and narrative have changed. The flip side of this is um, you look at some of his strategies and tactics. There was an acquisition uh, spree of young uh, clothing brands that were sort of digital savvy, digital native, as they'd call it in the industry. Like that failed massively. If you look at, um, you know, some other things he wanted to try to accomplish but ended up not being able to because he had lost, you know, the leadership had lost some faith in his decision making, um, you know, 
failure there as well. Um, so it, it's impossible to say, could they have gotten to where they are today at Walmart, which is a, a pretty good spot you know, compared to a decade ago in terms of online commerce. Could they have gotten there without him, without spending $3.3 billion? I don't know what the answer is. I do know they are in a better spot today than they were when he joined the company. And so I think he he and his team need to get some credit for that. And, and speaking of the the buying spree that Mark Lurie led, um, maybe can you uh, explain why they did that or how did it turn out? I think they bought... Uh, Bonobos and some other smaller e-commerce companies. But. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, he and his team were trying to figure out how are we going to differentiate ourselves from Amazon, at least when it comes to online shopping. Uh, Amazon has pretty low prices a lot of the time. They have the prime service, which depending on where you live in the U.S. or in this world you know, it could be anywhere from two-day delivery to same-day delivery, so pretty convenient. Um, and then Amazon, you know, in their pursuit of uh, the everything store, essentially, they sign up hundreds of thousands of small businesses to sell goods so that their selection, their product catalog is just, you know, unmatched. And so all those areas would be tough to beat Amazon on. So what they decided to do was, well, let's go buy a bunch of sort of younger, hip clothing brands that don't sell on Amazon. And maybe we could start to attract some younger customers from different demographics than Walmart's core customer um, because we'll have this, these goods that they can't find at Amazon. And so, yes, they... Um, they acquired a company called Bonobos, which was a menswear brand uh, out in New York City, mostly sold online. They did have some showrooms where you could try stuff on, uh, but really an online business. And they bring in this leader named Andy Dunn, charismatic founder, um, really good at, like Mark, at storytelling and cheerleading and vision setting. And his goal was, let's acquire a bunch more brands and build this family of brands that um, sort of make us seem younger and hipper in some ways, but also keep these customers that love these brands from shopping at Amazon. Um, it didn't get very far. And Bonobos does get acquired over $300 million, which is, for any company, a sizable deal. Uh, and then they try to acquire more companies. And Walmart's old guard is looking at the fact that this leadership team is having trouble turning a profit to begin with, and then looking at these young startups uh, and the valuations that investors have given these young startups that Mark and team want to buy, and saying, these startups don't make money. They're like, yes, they grow fast, but they're not profitable. And we already know we're having a problem with that internally. Why are we going to add more of these problems to, to, our, to our Walmart family? And so Andy and Mark, and uh, they're only able to uh, acquire one more of these brands. The name is Eloquy. It's a plus-size women's fashion company, mostly online as well. $100 million deal. And that deal is finalized. The company joins Walmart, and they realize, oops, 
Um, we thought this company's financials looked like this, but actually they've been deteriorating in the months before the deal. And we didn't really know that. Um, just was a very bad look for uh, the Jet you know, leadership team, Andy Dunn, who was running this operation. And at that point, you know, I learned while reporting the book, the acquisition strategy was sort of killed. Um, Mark just stopped fighting for it. He knew the Walmart leadership team down in their home office of, of Bentonville, Arkansas, was not going to approve any other big deals. And it all just sort of dies on the vine. And uh, another important executive on the Walmart side is current CEO, Doug McMillan. Um, I think you describe him as he's not really a natural risk taker. And uh, he also has other priorities besides e-commerce, like, um, you know, overseas expansion or uh, Sam's Club. So, uh, you know, is he... uh, What's his kind of, you know, reputation or how would you characterize him? Is he the right person for this job or any thoughts? Yeah, yeah so I, I um, you know, it, it's amazing. Doug McMillan is, he's been CEO of Walmart since 2014. Um, you know, by revenue, the biggest retailer still. So much power across, you know, the United States, uh, I, so it's somewhat on the coast, but really all across middle America. I mean, and so he is super powerful, super important figure. And yet I just found I, you know, I hadn't read that much about him over the years. Like, you know, I, there's a profile in Fortune magazine way back in, I think, 2015, maybe. But in terms of really knowing who this person was, the coverage is just not that deep. And I think Walmart partly liked it that way. So. I wrote a whole chapter about him in the book. I went down and spent um, about an hour and a half interviewing him in the same office that Sam Walton once worked out of in Bentonville, Arkansas. And uh, I could tell you a few things about him as a leader. One is he did grow up inside the company. So um, it seems like they were grooming him for the job from his early 30s, maybe. They put him to run Sam's Club, then at some point, Internet, Walmart International, trying to get him all this different experience. Another is the Walmart leaders of sort of yesteryear saw him in his early 40s at the time as someone who was more modern, someone who understood technology. You know, he talks about um, back in the day being one of the earliest uh, buyers of, I think, Palm Pilot or another type of early uh, early personal gadget and uh, someone who could really lead a transformation and get buy-in because he knew what he was talking about, but also he had been at the company a long time. I call you know, he's sort of, I think the chapter title is Hometown Boy. Like, he was the, he was the hometown boy, but one who had seen a bit of the world and, and liked technology. Um, he's had a really tough job, though. I, I don't feel bad for him. He makes over $20 million a year. Like, he is, he is doing okay. But, you know, Walmart is just a massive operation that was set in his ways. And so, you know, like, like I alluded to, the Jet deal and the Mark Lurie acquisition, it was a, big, a bit of a Hail Mary. And I think, I think they had to do something. And I, I think it was, you know, I think it makes sense that they felt like they needed to make sort of what was then a desperate play. Um, 
he still has a lot of fans inside the company, uh, but he's trying to do a lot of different things, as you alluded to. I, I read a chapter about healthcare, both companies getting into healthcare, something he really wants to, the Walton family really wants Walmart to play a bigger role in. Um, also, he does have to worry about um, the store sales and keeping those leaders happy, the international business. India is a huge, massive opportunity for both companies, and Walmart has spent a lot there. So I think he is seen as a good leader, a good champion of the company. People call him a world-class orator. I think someone compared him to um, early years Obama level. Uh, and so what actually employees want, they want him out there even more. There's a lot of talk still inside the company frustrating to a lot of people about what would Sam Walton do? What would Sam do? And, uh, you know, people would just love for uh, Doug to Doug to be even more of the face of the company because he, he is a beloved leader there. Yeah, the, the whole uh, anecdote about what would Sam do, that kind of reminded me of uh, how Jeff Bezos uh, remains a big presence at Amazon even though he's no longer the CEO. And um, maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about uh, the similar values or cultural uh, overlap that Amazon and Walmart has. They, they kind of share, um, you know, frugality, customer obsession. And it yes. seems like they're, um, you know, uh, chasing each other, but they also have this kind of love-hate relationship where they respect each other. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Nick? Yeah, so especially in the early years of Amazon, you know, I think I think there was a lot of a lot of respect for what Walmart had built. Um, you know, Jeff Bezos and his team, they did borrow beyond hiring some Walmart exec key Walmart executives in the early days. They also did bar, borrow some sort of company values or what Amazon calls leadership principles. So frugality was one of them, like essentially we should be operating our business, you know, internally in the most cost-effective way. Amazon sort of st- stands apart, as you know, from other Silicon Valley tech companies in that there are no, you know, luxurious free lunches or dry cleaning on campus or, you know, anything like that. So frugality was one. Another is bias for action, essentially meaning let's not wait, you know, till we're 100% sure we've made the right decision. You know, let's not wait six months to try this new initiative because we don't quite know if we've got it completely right. It's this idea that let's move, let's, let's make an informed decision as best we can with the information we have and then move quickly. And um, so Amazon famously in business circles has something called two pizza teams, essentially these autonomous teams. Um, with people from different parts of the company working together on a new project or new idea without interference from uh, other divisions. And I learned in reporting the book, um, some of that idea actually comes from the way Walmart used to operate. They had something called strategy teams and a Walmart leader uh, named Rick Dalzell, who's a, who's a smaller character, character in this book, he brings some of that idea to Jeff Bezos. So, a lot of respect there. Consumer focus, um, you know, trying to keep prices low, you know. But over time, we've also found um, 
and, and then and then Walmart goes ahead and in recent years and hires a ton of people from Amazon into logistics and warehouses. Um, that said, you know, Amazon CEO is now Andy Jassy, um, longtime Amazonian. And, you know, I have some reporting in the book where uh, he looks at Walmart and he thinks they're sort of, you know, in some ways as big and big and bad as Amazon. And he can't understand. He's talking to his internal leaders. Why is the government not focused their scrutiny on Walmart? They're, you know, they have more revenue than us. Um, they have more physical retail market share than us. And so um, there, there is at points begrudging respect. Um, but, you know, there's also this, this, uh, this real, you know, thing that they are, they are still a core enemy of ours and um, not understanding why they don't get, no longer get, the level of scrutiny that that Amazon's now facing. Yeah, so uh, maybe we should move on to Amazon's side of the story. Um, And I really liked your intro where you talk about your uh, brief encounter with Jeff Bezos and, you know, you ask about his outfit. Um, (laughs) His answer was very interesting that, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of, uh, captures what Amazon is trying to do in the uh, in retail world, basically applying new technology on you know in a very old retail market. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So yeah. So so my prologue starts with an anecdote. Um, yeah, it's I, I meet Jeff backstage at, backstage at a, at a tech conference where uh, he was speaking and. I knew I only had a moment or two, as you know, Eugene. Um, there are, if, if if Jeff or an Amazon leader is anywhere, uh, there are uh, a group of PR leaders, publicity, you know, pre- communications professionals, not far behind. So, this was not a planned encounter. Encounter. So I tried to get his intention. Um, he had recently said in a magazine feature that he was very interested in Amazon's then young new business of uh, selling their own clothing, their own line of clothing. So um, I think it's a smart idea to ask him what he's wearing, if he's wearing any Amazon-branded clothing. He didn't really get the connection. He walks away, but he does come back, and he talks about this idea that, you know, uh, sort of old-school retail stylist and personalization was based on one person's opinion. What if you uh, melded the best of what a human can do in this space with what, you know, algorithms could could do in in personalizing a shopping experience. And I thought that encounter was interesting and, and sort of uh, emblematic of what Amazon had become or tried to be in a few ways. One was um, this idea of technology and what humans do be- best and melding that together to create a better outcome, a better experience is something that Amazon and Bezos has cared about for a long time. But the other thing was... Um, the way he reacted and his PR professional reacted um, also just told me, you know, they, they, they were not happy that um, I had found him and was speaking to him and that they really didn't want to have sort of any tough conversations really with people who might report on or just have criticisms of the company. And it reminded me that Walmart was much once very much this way. And until a point in their history where they went on this sort of, yes, maybe self-serving listening tour of their critics. And Amazon is just um, 
you know, you know this well, Eugene, never quite wants to even acknowledge that um, the negative outcomes of some of their actions. And so um, it was, A, a fun scene and a fun encounter, but I also thought it spoke to what Amazon had become and some lessons they hadn't yet learned from Walmart. And uh, But reading your book, it felt like Amazon was always a step ahead of Walmart. Uh, the, the Quincy acquisition, uh, you know, beating Walmart to get PillPack. Um, yep, a healthcare, yep, a healthcare right. on, and, online pharmacy, um, yep. Right, and even buying Whole Foods on the same day, Walmart <laughs> bought Bonobos, which was supposed to be a major event for Walmart. Correct, uh, correct. So, like, what's what, what's what's going on here? Is there something that Walmart is completely missing, or is Amazon just uh, better because it's an upstart? What's yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think I think part of it is Walmart you know, failed for so long in online shopping that Amazon just got this massive lead. And so, um, you know, it's hard to claw your way back. Yeah, the, the the Whole Foods deal being announced on the same day as Bonobos, you know, I had one executive tell me, I think he said, man, my heart, my heart sank, you know, uh, Amazon was playing chess and it was clear we were playing checkers. Um, so, so the, that that was a reality, but I think it also was about risk taking. You alluded to this in my interview with Doug McMillan. He he admitted. He said naturally, like I'm not a risk taker. Um, I think he said something like, I, "I don't bungee jump, you know. I don't gamble. I don't take risks, but." I know, like, if this company is going to be around 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we do need to take risks. And so in recent years, they've started taking some more risks. Um, But again, it's like this is all I think this is all part of the innovators dilemma. They had something that worked. They were very, very good at. They were rewarded for um, handsomely by Wall Street. And uh, they fell really far behind. Um, now, if we go to more present day, um, if you'd like, we could talk about where, where Amazon is now facing some challenges as well in areas where Walmart um, sort of has their key strengths. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that's the next question I had, uh, like, you know, physical stores or grocery, uh, healthcare. Amazon wants to get in, but um, yeah, there's a lot of question marks and... Um, you know, Walmart, yeah. maybe they have the advantage. How do you see this all playing out? Yeah, so I thought, you know, first, just Amazon acquisition of, of Whole Foods. At the time, I don't know how you saw it. I saw it as sort of a Amazon once in there, you know, very rarely will sort of wave a white flag and say, like, you know, we've, we've failed and we need help. And uh, Amazon had been dabbling with a grocery delivery service for years uh, known as Amazon Fresh. And it really, they couldn't f- figure out a, sort of how to make it sustainable, uh, uh, you know, when it came to the f- financials. And so they go out, they buy Whole Foods, they spend almost $14 billion. Of course, their stock goes up so much on the day that... Uh, it essentially the deal essentially felt like a free deal for them because they were worth that much more as a result of the deal. But the Whole Foods acquisition, I don't think, has gone as well as they would have hoped. Um, all sorts of problems from actual like grocery problems, which were keeping uh, groceries fresh and in stock. 
Um, I, I think they approached physical retail with some level of arrogance that they're the smartest guys and gals in the room and, and they could figure this out. And so one hand, you have Whole Foods. Then, you know, as some people may realize, they expanded into their own bookstores. They opened up also um, and still have, though they've paused the expansion, Amazon Fresh grocery stores, which are supposed to be a little down market from Whole Foods, more of a mass uh, grocer with mass products, uh, you know, brands like Doritos and Coca-Cola and stuff you may not find in Whole Foods. And they thought, well, like we discussed with Jeff Bezos, we'll add some technology to some of these stores. Um, You know, maybe you just are able to walk out because your shopping cart actually scans the products. You don't have to wait online. And maybe that'll be enough differentiation. I think they found, though, uh, the hard way, physical retail is largely about what the core experience is for customers. And um, are the prices good? Are the Is the produce fresh? And they've sort of failed in a lot of ways in this space. And I think they'll keep at it, but they're not quite sure what their differentiation is. And, you know, it, it's been just a, a big area of failure to date. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Amazon is dealing with its own set of issues uh, with the leadership change, uh, growth slowing down. Uh, you get into the labor issues as well. Um is Amazon at risk right now or, you know, is now an opportunity to for, for Walmart to to really make a run at, uh, you know, winning more market share? I, I think this is absolutely an inflection point in Amazon's history. Um, you cited, you know, all sorts of issues. There's... Um, there are the labor issues. You know, there, there was a one un- union victory uh, in New York City. Um, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, the Teamsters Union is going at Amazon hard as well. Then you have layoffs, cost-cutting by the new CEO, Andy Jassy. I think there was some undisciplined spending toward Jeff Bezos's, uh last few years as CEO. And so trying to rein some of that in. Um, the layoffs were communi- communicated internally in just an awful way. It was kind of a disaster. I had longtime Amazonians, as they call themselves, who love the company say, you know, I'm going to leave the company because of how poorly this was handled. Um, and then you have the physical, you know, slowing growth online, but also all this, all the problems with their physical retail strategy. I think it's a, it's been a huge opening for Walmart. I think, you know, I think they're starting to take advantage. But really, um, this is the first time in, I don't know, since, you know, in 20 years probably that they have a real good chance to, to steal a large percentage or some meaningful percentage of Amazon customers. Um, but you know, it, it's still early on in sort of this this period, this new period for Amazon. And so we'll see if Walmart can execute well enough to do that. Yeah. And uh, we should talk about Walmart Plus a little bit, since that seems to be their uh, kind of big new tool they want to use to win more market share from Amazon. Uh, you broke a lot of news about this new membership program from Walmart. Um is it doing well? Uh, 
you know, is it the right strategy? Yeah. You get into how, you know, the behind the scenes thinking at Walmart about this, but can you share a little bit more? Sure. So Walmart leaders won't say this, but former executives will. I think they, they Amazon Prime was um, stealing away so many of their best online customers that they eventually felt, you know, some some leaders have been against a membership program because how can you um, essentially they're they're all about the everyday low price and if you start giving different customers a different experience or different discounts maybe that goes away from that core philosophy, but they 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 eventually realize we need to come up with our own essentially membership or loyalty program. And uh, they talked about it for a few years. They were slow to finally launch it. But finally, in 2020, they, they come out with this thing called uh, Walmart Plus. Um, at its core, they uh, are trying to, to focus on the fact that you, get, you can get same-day or next-day delivery of groceries. Uh, groceries is a space they, you know, they keep prices really low, and they've been in for a long time. So see that as differentiation. But then, you know, they think, well, there's a lot of other things you could do at Walmart that maybe we could build into the perks. So uh, discounts at Walmart gas stations or pharmacy discounts. We know Walmart's big in the pharmacy space. So I, I, think, I think the idea was, was a good one. I think they came along very, very late. And so it's been, you know, some of them feel that they have to steal prime customers. But... Uh, you know, as we can talk about, for, for good and bad reasons, uh, Amazon really keeps their prime customers locked in. And uh, so how's it doing? You know, I think it's doing okay. There were some numbers early on, you know, that show them having, I think, in single-digit million customers uh, or members. And so when I hear the CEO, as he did in an interview with me, try not to have me focus on you know, Walmart Plus and how, how important it is. He was saying, you know, it's just one thing we're doing. I, I think that they still have a lot of room there for improvement, but it's something I think they'll stay committed to because they feel like they have no other choice if they want to cut into Amazon Prime's hold on people. Got it. So uh, before we run out of time, I want to ask you one last question. Uh, what's the verdict who won or who's going to win, <laughs> or as you wrote in your last chapter, are we going to end up with multiple winners? Yeah. So, you know, if, if you had asked me, you know, five, six years ago, I thought, I thought for sure that Amazon was really going to run away with e-commerce. Um, and, and then eventually, as e-commerce became more important, like r- run away with everything, essentially. And I, I did believe there was a world where for a lot of commodity products that you can find in a lot of place, pr- places that um, Amazon would be it. I think Walmart's done enough to sort of keep their ground now, and I don't see Amazon running away with it anymore. That said, um, there are other factors at play, um, you know. Uh, FTC just filed a lawsuit against Amazon uh, related to Amazon Prime, uh, large part due to some of your reporting, Eugene, as you know. Uh, and so there's, a, there's the labor strife. Uh, there's the cost cutting. 
you know, they're, they're, both companies are at sort of this key inflection point where Walmart can start catching up in a big way. But I don't see, as of now, one winner. And maybe my hope just for society, for, um, you know, labor in this country, for consumers in this country is that, you know, they, we will continue to see new companies pop up that can challenge these two companies, force them to do better in a lot of ways. And maybe, Eugene, you and I are talking 20 years from now and we're talking about a new company that doesn't even exist today. Um, and that might be not the worst thing in the world. All right. Well, uh, I guess that's all the questions I have. So thanks again, Jason, for taking your time. And I uh, look forward to reading more, more of your work. Thanks so much, Eugene. Same here. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>